Long story short, you did not have. All right, good evening, everyone. We're gonna get started now. I'd like to welcome you to the regularly scheduled Planning Commission meeting for Wednesday, December 14th. Mr. McDonald, would you please call the roll? Sure, thank you. Commissioner Abbey is absent. Commissioner Davis? Here. Commissioner Farkas? Here. Commissioner McCarty? Here. Commissioner Zucker? Here. Vice Chair Lagerquist? Here. And Chair Comden? Here. Six members are present. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Chair Comden, before you start. Yes, please. My microphone is stuck in the on position. It is, yes. And uh, my apologies. That microphone is currently broken. So it's either on or off. <laughs> so Commissioner, you chose to move. So. <laughs> what we did last time is, is mark the Turn it off. Okay, yes, my apologies. We have some supply chain challenges with getting the pieces in. All right, uh, before we get started with the normal agenda, I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, there have been some changes that affect uh, our meetings, et cetera. Uh, Netta has uh, taken on the role of Interim Community Development Director, and uh, thank you for doing so, and good luck with that. And uh, as everyone knows, we've also, uh, we're having a change uh, in uh, leadership with the city manager. So there's a lot going on here. The agenda has always been full. Staff has always had a lot on their plate. I would dare say that they have an awful lot on their plate now. So we're gonna do the best we can um, as a city, as a, a staff, and as a commission to do what's right for the constituents of the city. With that, uh, let's go into public communications. Uh, this is the time set aside uh, during the committee meeting for members of the public to address the committee on planning related matters other than what's on the regularly scheduled agenda. Mr. McDonald, do we have any speakers? Thank you, Mr. Chair. We have no public communications received uh, for this portion. Okay, very good. Let's move to the consent items. Um, Number one, approval of the Planning Commission meeting minutes. Do we have any public speakers on this item? Thank you, uh, no public speakers on item number one. All right, very good. Mm. Would anyone like to move that we approve the meeting minutes? I'll move that we approve the meeting minutes unless anyone has any corrections or anything, right. I think they were fine. Do we have a second on that? Okay, please do. I think it's in the September meeting minutes. three or four in number three 
there's just a, a typo. The, it says um, blah, 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 and lot line adjustment for a four-story building with four live-work units, September 28, 2022, Planning Commission agenda, page 3 and 15. That just needs to be striked out. Thank you, uh, Vice Chair Lagerquist. I see what you're talking about. We'll, we'll clean that up. All right. Seeing that change, Commissioner Davis. Um, I think we have to break them out because I can't comment on the second one because yes. I was absent. Yes. So okay. maybe we have to do each one separately. Okay, very good. So okay. this is the approval of the minutes. Right, but sh can we, I'd like to break make out. a motion to approve the September 28th. with Commissioner Lagerquist's revisions. Very good. Let's move forward with that vote to approve September 28th minutes, please. And my apologies. Did we have a second on that? I'll second that. Okay. Yes, we did. Okay, on the approval of the September 28th minutes, Commissioner Abbey is absent. Commissioner Davis? I have to abstain because I was absent. Commissioner Farkas? Yes. Commissioner McCarty? Yes. Commissioner Zucker? Yes. Vice Chair Lagerquist? Yes. And Chair Comden? Yes. Five ayes and the motion carries. Thank you. Now let's vote to uh, approve the November 8th, 9th minutes. Do I have someone? Yes, please. I'll make a motion to approve those minutes. Very good. Do we have a second? I'll second. Okay. Just like a game show, you got to do it quick. <laughs> All right. Mr. McDonald, uh, would you please take the vote on that? Sure, on the approval of the November 9th meeting minutes, Commissioner Abbey is absent. Commissioner Davis? Yes. Commissioner Farkas? Yes. Commissioner McCarty? Yes. Commissioner Zucker? Yes. Vice Chair Lagerquist? Yes. And Chair Comden? Yes. Six ayes and the motion carries. Okay, thank you. Now let's move on to the formal item, uh, the Inclusionary Housing Program Ordinance. Item number two. Oh, I'm sorry. Approval of the Planning Commission hearing calendar for 2023. Yes. I'm not used to working off paper anymore. So uh, the hearing calendar, uh, interesting enough, shows that uh, we're planning to have one Planning Commission meeting uh, per month um, as opposed to the two. And that makes sense to me because we've had a lot of cancellations. So uh, has everyone reviewed that? Do we have any comments on the calendar? for next year. Would someone like to move to approve that? Before we do, do we have any public comments on item thank, number two? Thank you, no public comment received on item number two. Thank you. I would move to approve okay. the calendar. Do we have a second? I'll second the motion. Okay, very good. Would you please take the roll? Okay, to approve item number two, Commissioner Abbey is absent. Commissioner Davis? Yes. Commissioner Farkas? Yes. Commissioner McCarty? Yes. Commissioner Zucker? Yes. Vice Chair Lagerquist? Yes. And Chair Comden? Yes, please. Six ayes and the motion carries. Very good. All right, now let's move on to the formal item. Uh, inclusionary Housing Program Ordinance. Um, there is no staff, oh, staff is stepping up now. as they set up, 
Planning Commission, joined this evening with by Leona Rollins, who's our Housing Services Manager, which I believe you all met um, a couple of months back as we did the uh, homelessness plan update, um, as well as with Jenny Buckingham, who's our Senior Management Analyst in the Housing Services Division with Community Development. We are also joined virtually um, with uh, our consultant team, and I'll let them um, introduce themselves when uh, they come up to present as well, but just um, so you're aware of who's uh, before you this evening. <laughs> Technology. Good evening. Suri wants to join in the conversation. <laughs> good evening. Are you ready to present? Sure am. Thank you. you please do. And good evening. As Meta said, I'm Jenny Buckingham. This is really loud. Um, and I'm with the Housing Services Division. And as an, in, as an introduction to tonight's discussion, it's a follow-up to the Planning Commission meeting on February 23rd of this year, in which the Commission considered a proposed inclusionary housing ordinance to replace the 2018 ordinance called the Interim Inclusionary Housing Program. In the February 23rd meeting, the Planning Commission requested an evaluation of including low-income units in ownership housing program projects and very low-income units in rental projects. In response to that request, the inclusionary housing financial analysis was prepared by Kaiser Marston Associates, the consultant for the inclusionary housing ordinance component of the overarching general plan update. Kathy Head, president of Kaiser Marston, is here tonight virtually to review the findings in the financial evaluation. Unless you have questions for staff, Ms. Head will proceed with her presentation. Thank you very much. Are there questions at this time? All right, please proceed. Um, good evening. Uh, can you hear me? Can everybody hear me? We can yep. hear you, yes. Okay, terrific. I think I'm on the wrong camera. Um, but besides that, everything's great. Um, so, um, are one of you um, in the room going to run the PowerPoint then, or am I going to share mine? Yes, we've got the PowerPoint here up on the screen, so go ahead and let us know when you are ready to move to the next slide. Okay, great. Will you move to the next slide, please? So I'm just, for briefly, what Jenny just went over, um, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. I just wanted to talk about the timeline from when we um, started this whole endeavor. So in um, May of 2018, the City Council adopted the Interim Inclusionary Housing Program. And then in September 20, 2021, Kaiser Marston was engaged to provide an in lieu fee analysis for that program, um, the unified program that was being considered. Um, and so that was the sole scope of what our original analysis in 2021 was, was to figure out what the in lieu fee component would be. And then um, that was also based on assumptions that were provided, which was that it would be based, the Luffy would be based on a 15% moderate income requirement for ownership projects and a 15% low income requirement for apartment projects. Then uh, at a meeting held on February 9th, 2022, we presented our findings and participated in a lengthy discussion with the commission and, and various members of the public. And as a result of that meeting, there was a subsequent request for there to be a financial evaluation done of the inclusionary housing ordinance in general. So to look at the supportable inclusionary housing requirements. 
And so we then started on, on that mission. And um, as part of that, we were asked to look at um, ownership housing for both moderate income and low income households and rental housing for low income and very low income households. Whereas before we'd only been looking at it um, from the moderate for ownership and the low for um, apartments. We could go to the next slide, please. So I just wanna go over um, a few highlights of the standards that need to be considered when adopting, or in this case, updating an inclusionary housing program. Um, and the basic legal standards, which have come out of the court cases um, for, uh, that have preceded this um, throughout the state are that inclusionary housing ordinances cannot be confiscatory and they cannot deprive an owner or developer of a fair or reasonable return on their investment. Um, as I'll mention again um, later, and then we can undoubtedly talk about some more, um, the courts didn't define what that means. So what we at Kaiser Marston have done in, in all the work that we've been doing over, over the past 25 years or so is just take a conservative approach to the analyses we do as, as a means of making sure that um, if coming under scrutiny that the, the program will, will continue, continue to hold up. The other thing to think about is that you want to balance your the interests of, of the property owners and developers, um, because if they don't feel it's worthwhile to develop, then they won't develop in your community, against the the obvious need, the public need for affordable housing. No one's no one's debating the issue that there is a substantial need for unmet need for affordable housing in in Ventura and in Southern California at large. Um, but those are the, the key things that I look at when I, when I start these analysis and I consider it, is that. Um, so then what we do is we do, and we did in this case, a financial evaluation to evaluate these issues. And then what we take that evaluation to do is to help us formulate our recommendations for how the program's income and affordability standards should, should be set up. Um, we give you those recommendations and then um, it's just one piece of the puzzle. You have obviously other um, things to think about, other issues to think about. Um, so, but my piece is just limited to that financial evaluation. Uh, you can go on the next slide, please. So what we did is we looked at um, in our financial evaluation, as I mentioned before, the income and affordability standards that were requested by the planning commission were for ownership housing development, um, a moderate income requirement and a low income requirement. And for apartment development, um, we actually in the report, but what we won't focus on a lot, um, what we will focus on is the low income and the very low income. We also ran, and it's in, in the report, um, some mix and match scenarios of 75% of the inclusionary units would be low income and 25% would be very low income or 50% would be low, 50% would be very low, or 25% would be low and 75% would be very low. So those were those are the analyses in the, in the full report. But in this PowerPoint, I'm focused on the low and the very low income. We could go to the next slide, please. So the steps of the financial evaluation, the, the, or, the way it's organized is we start out by creating prototype development types and what we use to do that is we use the housing element, we use plans that have been submitted to the planning department and through our market survey, we um, look at the types of units that have been developed. And so then we create prototypes 
for both ownership units and for apartment units. We then take those prototypes and conduct a pro forma analysis for each of the prototypes. And the first thing we do in that analysis is to do a 100% market rate project alternative. And that's to identify what the baseline developer return, profit from an ownership project or ongoing return from an apartment project that would be anticipated to be received by a market rate project. Because basically, you're looking at two things when you do that. One, you're looking at how, how successful is residential development in the community right now, just forgetting that you have inclusion already in a community, in a generic community, how successful market rate development is and what kind of returns they're getting. Because the whole idea when you're looking at this type of financial analysis is to identify the impact created by a new requirement. And so that's what this analysis does. We start with a market rate analysis and then we do a marginal analysis of if we add an income restriction and so we lower the rent or we lower the sales price for units, how does that impact the project economics? And so we keep adding until we get to, to a point where we think, and again, the courts haven't told us, you know, what confiscatory means or what a fair and reasonable return is, but I've done 35 of these. And so, and they've been evolving over the, over the 20 plus years that I've been doing them. The analysis has been evolving to, to cover more and more uh, issues associated with it. And so I'm comfortable with our methodology, but again, it, it is, there is some ambiguity in it because of the fact that, that we haven't been told exactly what is allowable and what isn't allowable. Um, but what we really wanna do, or at least my recommendation to you for what I think you wanna do, is that um, the Housing and Community Development Department in the state of California, while they don't have a right in your case to come in and require you to do a financial evaluation for an inclusionary program because you've met the two standards that they've established that, that eliminate their potential for requiring a financial evaluation. However, HCD always has the right to come in and ask you to prove that what you're doing is not a constraint to housing. And so while that's not specifically written up in, in AB 1505, which is where the discussion of the financial evaluation is, I actually have worked in a number of cities where HCD has come just sort of out of the blue and made us prove up that our inclusionary program is not confiscatory. So they have an, they have an absolute right via AB 1505 to look at your rental component, uh, but they actually always have the right in their role as the housing element um, reviewers to look at it for a constraint to housing. Um, next slide, please. And the next slide. So we looked at um, three types of ownership housing, and that was the same three types that we looked at when we did the Inlufi analysis last year. And so what I did was I took those prototypes that we were using just for Inlufi analyses, and I did financial evaluations of the supportable requirement. And I'll just briefly run over what those scenarios are. So we have a, a single family home project so that's just detached homes, low density, seven units the acre. The, and and I, this is an updated analysis, by the way. So we did this in August. So we did all the market work over again in August that we um, started 
we've done the year before. And so um, a fair amount of this information has changed from when we talked to you last February um, to now this is now this is August market data, so it's now several months old, but it's newer than last year. So the detached single family home scenario, um, the average unit size is 2870, so 2,870 square feet. They range from, in the prototype, they range from three bedrooms to five bedrooms. Uh, the total development costs, including land acquisition, um, are estimated in that scenario at $1.13 million. The weighted average sales price of those units, 1.33 million, and the developer profit on that from a market rate project with no restrictions is a little over 11%. If you go then to the townhouse scenario, the density is increased to 15 units the acre. The unit sizes are one, the weighted average size is 1,790 square feet. The total development cost per unit is $709,000. The weighted average sales price is $865,400. And the developer profit on the townhomes is 15.3%. It's not unusual to have the return be higher on townhomes than detached single family homes, just because there's a different risk profile to them. Um, the magnitude of this, this difference is fairly significant. Uh, when you look at the stacked flat condominium scenario, this is a downtown scenario um, at a density of 50 units the acre with the average unit size of 1,120 square feet per unit, development costs of, of $532,000 per unit, and then average sales prices of $606,000. When you look at that, the developer profit as a percentage of cost on that scenario is 7.7%. That is actually lower than we would anticipate um, for a developer be willing to be willing to undertake the project, um, given the type of risk associated and the cost premiums associated with, with the parking types and, and the density um, and, and just a marketing risk as well. That is a lower than typical rate of return, so we're concerned about that, that prototype. Um, it actually shows up again in the apartment development, just like it did in the Inlufi, and it works a lot better. It works a lot better as an apartment development than it did as an ownership prototype. We could go to the next slide, please. So here we have the affordable sales prices. These are the affordable sales prices as of 2022. When we did the analysis in, 20, um, in February 22, when we presented it to you, the 2022 incomes had not yet come out from HCD. So when we did this in August, they were out. Um, the other thing that had happened between December when we actually wrote the Inlufi analysis and August when we wrote the financial evaluation is as I imagine you all know, interest rates went crazy. Um, what we did to mitigate the impact of those interest rates um, because we don't wanna have a policy that's only good for August. We don't want to take into account that we've had this blip of dramatic interest rate increases over a very short period of time and assume that that's going to go on forever. So what I did when I did this analysis, when I updated the analysis, I actually took the Freddie Mac interest rates over the 12 preceding months. And then I took the, the average of those interest rates. And then I, and then I put a little bit of a, excuse me, put a little bit of a premium on them 
just to, again, to be conservative. But I do think that that was a significant difference between what you saw in February and what you're seeing now. It's mitigated to some extent by the fact that Ventura County, the median income between 2021 and 2022 went up by 19%. So that, um, and this happened throughout Southern California, the Southern California counties, the, the median income increase was sort of off the charts. And, and so you have both higher interest rates, but higher income. So they, they balance themselves off a bit. Um, so the affordable prices, as you can see, and I think the most crucial thing, rather than me just reading all the numbers to you, is the reason the moderate income prices are so much higher than the low income prices is twofold. One is when calculating the affordable housing cost for moderate income units, if you're using the California Health and Safety Code as your measurement tool, they allow you to count 35% of income towards housing related expenses. Using the same tool, they only allow you to use 30% of income for low income units. And so that makes a significant difference. You're also measuring against 70% of the area median income for low versus 110% of the median income for moderate. Um, but that's, that's the cause of, of the big differences between moderate and low. The other thing you, you may notice is that um, sometimes the, the larger number of bedrooms actually is generating a lower affordable price. And, and the reason for that, when that happens, is that the sales tax and, the, and the, the HOA costs or the cost to maintain the unit for the bigger unit is actually taken away enough of the income that there's actually less money left for, for mortgage. So that's why when you see an example of the price going, the affordable price going down, it's mainly due to property taxes. Um, we can go on to the next slide. So the results of the ownership analysis are, are presented in this table. And as you can see, the supportable inclusionary housing percentage is basically nine to 10% when, it, when it's um, categorized on moderate income. Um, if you look at the two lines below that, which are developer profit as a percentage of cost or, and or the market price increase required to offset the impact. So in other words, how much would market prices have to go up in order for the impact to be eliminated? And you'll see that, so both of those, the developer profit, what we're trying to do is, is keep that to, to less than, less than, um, well, we're trying to keep it within a, in an acceptable range. And then on the market rate price, we're trying to keep it right around 5%. So you can see that um, it, it ranges, depending on the scenario, from 4.3% to 5.5. So then when you look at the low income, you'll see that those ratios are, are very similar on the, on the two lines below the supportable inclusionary housing percentage. And that's because, again, we're solving for not creating an impact that is confiscatory or depriving an owner of a fair and reasonable return. And so we're trying to use the same metric and that's how we end up at a 6% supportable inclusionary housing requirement at low income. Um, next slide, please. So then what we did um, as a part of this analysis is we updated the Enlufi payment analysis. We continued to use a moderate income requirement 
for the in-lieu fee, even though we can't support in our financial analysis a production requirement of 15%. And the reason it's okay to do that is because the in-lieu fee is an option rather than a requirement. The fundamental requirement of an inclusionary program is the production of units. And so you can make an in-lieu fee higher than what it would be to, to have um, produced those units because then a developer has just made that choice that they'd rather spend the money than, than to produce the units. You've made the choice that you're willing to accept an in-lieu fee and under what you've decided to accept that in-lieu fee. So if you, if you look at those in-lieu fees as they, as they fall out, you'll see that the detached single-family home at a 15% requirement is $46.40. And then if you take it up to a 20% requirement, it's $66.30. This is per square foot of saleable area. And the reason that I do it um, as a measurement of saleable area is because then it, it, it doesn't harm small units and it provides more revenue for larger units, which tend to be more valuable. And so I've shown you all three measures, the in, the in lieu fee per inclusionary unit, the in lieu fee per total unit, and the per square foot fee. I show that because different people understand it different ways. But in fact, if you were to do the multiplication of that fee on the project, it would work out exactly the same, no matter which of these methods you used. Um, so then the townhome project, the affordability gaps are less. And so because the affordability gaps are less, you end up with a lower fee and it ends up at 29.80 and 49.60. And then the stack flat condominiums ends up at 33.60 and 44.80 per square foot of building or saleable area. Um, next slide, please. And then next slide, please. So then the same thing we ran and I ran two sets of numbers for the apartment prototypes. So the first set of numbers I ran for the apartment prototypes were against the base zoning. So based on the assumption that a developer didn't make use of the state density bonus. Now in Ventura, you have form-based code zoning, so you don't actually have a density limit, but you can extrapolate to, to a way that developers would use density bonus. And in fact, you've had projects where developers have used the density bonus and then to get the concessions and incentives, and so to get development standards waivers, et cetera. Um, so it can be done, but it's, it's not as typical in an area that has actual zoning based on, on densities. But so this set of scenarios is the base zoning alternatives. And um, it, we have different prototypes for these because these are apartments rather than ownership units. Um, and so we have a coastal area set of prototypes. We have an inland area set of prototypes and then the downtown specific plan area prototype. And you'll notice on the downtown specific plan area prototype, it's exactly the same as the stack flat condominium was in, in the ownership development. And so, and you'll see in this one that it actually works dramatically better on the market rate than, than the condominium did in the ownership. That may not always be true, that probably won't always be true, but it, it's been true for the last, the last couple years. On the coastal area scenario, what we have is we have an average unit size of 890 square feet 
we have total development cost of $584,000 a unit, which is higher than the other two scenarios, and that's large, and while they're smaller units, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's largely because of difference in land cost for, for that area. Um, but you'll also see then that the weighted average rent per unit is also significantly higher than the, the weighted average rents for the other two scenarios. Um, it generates a 6% um, stabilized return on total investment, which is completely different than profit on an ownership project because this comes every year and it should grow every year. It should grow over time, even if it doesn't grow every year. And so instead of getting a one-time profit, you have a return that generates year after year. And so it's a completely different measurement and needs to be thought of differently than, than in an ownership profit situation. In the inland, in the inland area, we, as I mentioned, we have lower cost to build, we have lower rents, and we generate approximately the same stabilized return on total of investment. This is again for a 100% market rate project. And then the following scenario, the last scenario is the downtown specific plan. So it's the highest density of the three at 50 units the acre. It, it, the unit sizes are about the same as in the inland empire, excuse me, inland area, a um, little bit bigger. The costs are less um, than coastal, but higher than inland. And that's mainly because of parking. And the rents are actually higher than the rents that were demonstrated in the inland area. Um, and it generates a 6.1% return. So those three scenarios generate, <clears throat> even though all their economics are different, they generate a very similar return on investment. Uh, could you go to the next slide, please? So the affordable rents for, don't vary among the three scenarios. So the affordable rents, they're based on the number of bedrooms, they're based on a percentage of area median income, for the low income, they're based on 80% of area median income. Um, that's an AB 1505 standard that was, so we used it. And the very low income rents are based on 50% of area median income. Um, they're based on benchmark household sizes. They're based on 30% of income being spent on housing expenses. So as you can see, the low income rents range from 1798 to 2230. And the very low income rents range from 1106 to 1356. So there's a significant difference, um, and that's caused by 80% of area median versus 50% of area median income. We can move on to the next slide, please. So based on the costs and the revenues and the returns that we discussed, and based on the affordable rents that I just identified, I then estimated what the supportable inclusionary housing requirement would be. And so I have it for low income and I have it for very low income. On the low income standard, it was 9% for the coastal area. That's because of the larger affordability gaps. So it's a lower percentage that can be supported while maintaining economic stability. In the inland empire and in the downtown, they were 12% and 11% respectively. As you can see on the table, the stabilized return on investment is very, very similar among the three scenarios. It's 5.6, 5.6, and 5.8. Similarly, if you look at the market rent increase required to offset the impact, it's, it's in, the, in the low fives. 
And so in those cases, then that's how we came to the conclusion of 9, 12 and 11. Um, using exactly the same methodology, but applying the very low income rents, the supportable inclusionary requirement is 7% to 8%. And again, the stabilized return on investment is, is exactly the same as it was in the low income. Um, and the market rent increase is approximately the same as well. And so again, that's the whole point. The point is the variable is the supportable inclusionary percentage. We're trying to get to very similar other metrics in, in doing that. Um, next slide, please. So then the last scenario that I ran on rental, as I mentioned, is I ran the scenario based on um, using the, the state density bonus, the section 65915 density bonus. And what that does is it not only allows increased density or a greater number of units, it also allows, depending on how much affordable housing you provide, between one and three incentives and concessions, and as many development standards relief measures as you need to meet the density that is allowed by, by Section 65915. So it can be a very um, valuable tool, and it's very commonly used when inclusionary housing ordinances are being implemented because it does mitigate the impact of the affordability requirement imposed by inclusionary housing. So based on an APA case, any unit that's developed under an inclusionary policy that has an, and a density bonus, so you have a density bonus affordable, you have an inclusionary affordable, as long as you take the stricter of the two standards, so as long as the developer takes the stricter of the two standards, then you, the city, has to recognize the affordable unit as counting for both your inclusionary requirement and the state density bonus affordable requirement. And so when you have an inclusionary policy, then when it can be efficient for a developer to use it, so when the site's efficient, then they will make use of the density bonus to get these concessions, to get the parking relief provided by the density bonus in order to mitigate the affordable requirement that was imposed by inclusionary. So that's a byproduct of having an inclusionary program is that it is likely that you'll see more density bonus projects. Um, not all sites can efficiently use it. Not all sites are well set up. Once you get into different construction types or different parking configurations, it can actually, the increased development cost can exceed the benefits created by the additional, the additional number of units. Um, so that's why I don't like to base everything on everybody's gonna use density bonus. So I don't like to make conclusions based on that assumption that everybody's gonna use density bonus, but I do recognize that, that a lot of developers will use density bonus. And so that does help support a higher percentage. But also, as I just said, because of the Napa case, you're gonna have situations where it makes more sense for a developer to produce very low income units for the density bonus purposes and then and fulfill your say low income requirement because as long as it's stricter you have to double count them and so even though i'm recommending ultimately a low income requirement i believe that a fair amount of apartment development that occurs will actually choose to use the density bonus and will actually choose to provide very low income units um, but when I ran the three scenarios with the 15% with the very low income um, affordability, 
Um, they all worked. Uh, we can go to the next slide, please. And so then again, I updated the Enlufi analysis, again, using a 15% low income requirement, which was what was in the um, previous report, the Enlufi report, and just updated them for the new affordability gaps and, and, the, and kept it at 15% low income. And so as you can see, the, the fees range from, from $20.30 a square foot to $48.90 a square foot. And then I believe I have just one more slide. So my recommendations um, for you to consider are to set the ownership housing um, requirement at a 10% moderate income level and the apartment development um, requirement at 15% low income. And the reasons that I've suggested these percentages, and I know they're lower than the percentages that are in your existing interim ordinance, is once again, the courts have not told us what is confiscatory and what a reasonable return is. I like to use, in my work to protect my clients, I like to use a conservative approach um, so that not only will your ordinance stand up to scrutiny, but so that folks will continue to develop. So I really do, as I mentioned earlier in the presentation, I think it's important to balance the, the goal of getting as much affordable housing as you can get against the ability or the desire of developers to then build in the community. And so I think a conservative approach, personally, I think it serves you better to get a 10% moderate and a 15% low than a, a deeper affordability and less development. So that's part of the reasoning in my, in my conclusions and recommendations. And then the recommendations, um, I think, are supported by my financial evaluation. Um, and that's that. And I know it was a lot. So, and I know I talk really fast. But that's it. Thank you, Kathy. Um, a lot of work done there. A lot of uh, <laughs> statistical information for us to consider. Uh, do we have questions for her at this time, please, Commissioner McCarty. Hi, Ms. Head. Thank you for your analysis. This is Scott McCarty. <clears throat> so in, in, in looking at your in lieu fee analysis done in September of 2021 versus the one done this year, uh, almost a year later, um, the in lieu fees per square foot of saleable area for single family homes, townhomes, stacked flat condominiums, all increased on the order of 50 to 60% from your previous analysis. Right. On the other hand, for, for the apartments, uh, for coastal, inland, and the specific plan locations, those all decreased on the order of 20 to 40%. So part of what I'm, I'm understanding is part of what's driving the in-lieu fee payments for the housing development is you mentioned that the medium in, uh, well, median income is up by 19%, but your assumptions have changed with regard to market rate sales prices, and they've gone up 20 to 30% over the course of 11 months. That, that, is that correct? That's correct. That's right. And so what I do when I when I look at that is I go through and I do um, a research on all the resales of homes. And in this case, I did 18 months of resales of homes 
in the community. And so it is very much driven by what's happened. In this case, it was 18 months. Normally, I use um, 12 months. But because I'd done it before, I wanted to wrap them all in. And that is the, the single family home particularly are, are dramatically higher. So what, why would we expect things not to change over the next 11 months and the projected in lieu fees to go up another 50%? Or down. Okay, so you're taking a, a snapshot in time. Okay, so, so one of the risks with your, with, if we accept the results of your analysis is, is it, it's a snapshot in time. So we are, we would be incorporating into our ordinance uh, results based on, on this particular time period. Exactly, and I think that, and that's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent point. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I recommend, especially as markets are changing, that, well, A, I always recommend that you take a conservative approach. But B, the other thing that I recommend is, as, as economics are changing, and obviously this year with both, you know, the interest rate increase and the change in median income, which were both unusual, mm -hmm. is I tried to mitigate that in my analysis to some extent. But to the, I'll use my example, I think I used it the last time we spoke as well, is we did the Claremont inclusionary work in 2007. Well, we did not foresee the global recession that occurred almost immediately after. And so what happened was basically development stopped. It just stopped everywhere, not just Claremont. And so then what we did and what the city did was we went back in a couple years later and, and revamped the whole program. And I think in times where things are changing dramatically, it is important to keep an eye on what's happening and, and change as necessary. So I don't think you can ever look at this as something that now forever it should be this, because I think economics change both up and down. Okay. Uh, Commissioner well, McCarty, do you mind if I jump in and ask, answer part of that question too? Um, the inclusionary housing ordinance as, as it's drafted for your adoption in the in lieu uh, section, which is section 25.20.090, uh, it does st state in item two that the in lieu fee shall be paid according to a fee schedule adopted by council and adjusted annually based on adjustments in, in pricing. So then annually we would take a look and if there is fluctuations in home or rental uh, prices that we would adjust those and adopt a new fee schedule for the in-lieu fee program. Okay, I'll, I have a question about that point which I can make sometime later. Um, so one more question, Ms. Head, about your, the changes and assumptions to your analysis. I, I noticed, again, for the ownership housing development analysis, the distribution, the, the assumption of distribution of three, four, and five bedroom units, and for both uh, single family homes and townhomes, changed not insignificantly. Correct. Simply based on uh, more recent data. That's correct. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so. Curiously, in your, well, no, okay, that answers that question. So, 
So that's just another variable that will change year over year that has to be taken into account when these in, in lieu fee analyses are recalculated. Right, and I will tell you, that, and this it becomes an issue in cities or jurisdictions where there's not a lot of development going on, because ideally, and, and I, ideally almost never happens, but ideally you have new home development as opposed to having to focus on resale development. You have a, you know, in some places you have just a significant amount of new home development. Then you know what developers are building now, and that's the whole idea of inclusionary, is you're trying to, your prototypes are trying to be as close to what developers are going to build as possible, which is why you know, I'm using plans the cities receive, I'm using um, the housing element, et cetera, for that measure. And, and Ventura's not alone in this, but having to use resale data is not as great as having new home sales data. Okay, so hypothetical question, which is kind of actually a paraphrase of the question I was referring to that I'm gonna ask later. When, when you do analyses for cities such as this, and they implement your suggestions, and they write into their ordinances that the, the fees will be reviewed on a yearly basis, do they typically come back to you on a yearly basis, or is there expertise within the cities themselves to perform these pro forma analyses? So what I'll tell you, there's actually, there's an easy answer to this, because this is, I recommend it everywhere and that it's something I do for free is the Real Estate Research Council every year puts out the average home, new home price by county in the state of California. And so my recommendation for in lieu fees in the annual adjustment is to take the percentage change from one year to the next, be it up or down, and to adjust the fee by that percentage. It takes 15 minutes to do it. And then every you know five years or so, do a new analysis to to see what your specific Ventura characteristics are. But I think it's a good it's a good surrogate, and it's easy. Okay, good. Thank you. You're welcome. And I figured my camera out finally, so that was good. <laughs> Commissioners, any other questions? I do have a question. You had mentioned that you uh, recommend that we take a conservative approach. Um, can you explain that a little bit for us, please? Sure. I mean, I, the key idea from my perspective, well, two key ideas. One is, from a city's perspective, when you're trying to create the opportunities for affordable housing to be developed, you're asking in an inclusionary program for the private market to help you do that. And it's important when you're doing that to have your private development markets want to continue developing in, in your community. So you don't want to, in other words, create such an impediment or such a cost impact to them that it's no longer going to generate them profit because if they don't make profit, they're not going to build. So that's one reason to be conservative. Another reason is, it's exactly the discussion I was just having, is these numbers fluctuate over time. And so if we go, for example, as we sit right now, we're sitting in an interest rate environment where it's very difficult to sell a house. And so you're gonna see the development market be slowed down for, for a bit while that happens. And so if you have a policy that's too stringent, it just puts you a little farther behind the eight ball. The second is, and, and I say this, I don't know, firmly, I guess, I can't think of another word, is I really have worked in cities where HCD has come and said, You've got to prove this doesn't work. I'm working in a city right now 
where HCD says you've got to show us how the combination of your development standards, your inclusionary standards, and your development impact fees are not an impediment to development. Could you could I ask that uh, the slide page eleven be put up? The uh, developer profit model. And can you comment, please, on um, on these numbers? It looks to me that the developer profit as a percentage of cost, um, 5.2, 9.8, And uh, this is, uh, okay, so this is after the inclusion of moderate and low-income housing has been, perhaps it was page 14. I was going to say, because 11's a title page. 14 is the pro forma analysis for the apartments. Is that where you are? ROI, yeah. I, can you comment on the stabilized return on, on investment? Uh, are these numbers historically in this range, mid-single-digit? They have been for the last 10 or so years as cap rates have been so low. Mm -hmm. And so if you'd like me to explain that further, I will. Yes, please. Or, I will even if you don't ask, I suppose. <laughs> yes. So a, a cap rate is one way of, of measuring value of, of a project. And that is to say, if you divide the income generated, net income after, after you paid your operating expenses, and you know what your sales price was. So if you divide your income by your sales price, that's your cap rate. All right, and so you, know, you can flip those variables any way you want. So if you know the cap rate and you know the um, price, then you know what the income was and every way around that. So there's nothing magic about a cap rate. It's just one way that it's measured. Well, cap rates have been in the high threes to the you know four and a half, five percent for the last 10 plus years. So cap rates have been very low. And so the way you measure what a developer would want in an apartment is, it's the cap rate plus. And that's usually, in a higher cap rate environment, it's usually about 1%, 1.5%. But when you're starting with a 35 or a 4% cap rate, then that profit level isn't, that, that margin gets smaller. And the whole idea then is what you're really looking at is cap rate plus a 12 or 15% return of profit. And you, and you combine that and you get to, yeah. Five's at the low end of fine. Right. Yeah, I also wanted to point out here, well, you know, there is clearly, uh, the, the idea here is how can we get units um, built for affordability purposes uh, and still have green-lighted projects um, in the community. Um, I just wanted to mention here this weighted average rent 4,200 for less than 900 square feet. That's quite interesting. This is all based in, a, the, the terms coastal, inland, and downtown specific are all Ventura. Inland isn't correct. out of the city, right? That is correct. Very good. All right. And, they, and, our, and our survey, our market survey, was all on three and four plus stars apartment projects. Okay, very good. Commissioner Mercardi. Uh, Ms. Head, I, I have a follow-up question. I, I, heard you say something which caught my attention that I think, I think is extremely important. Uh, you mentioned that HCD may very well ask any given city to prove that its policies and ordinances are not an impediment to, to development, correct? Yes. So that would be trying to prove a negative, which 
is, is well nigh impossible. Would you also agree with that? Well, I, I, I guess I would, I understand it's proving a negative, so that is impossible. The manner in which this has been broached in the cities where I've been asked to help with it has been directly related to inclusionary policies. HCD is a little bit schizophrenic on how they feel about inclusionary policies. So one day they like them, one day they don't like them. And also, so like when you do your housing element, which, you, which you've just done, is when you've done your housing element, they'll look at whether you're including inclusionary and they'll both give you merits and demerits for it because if it's too much, well, they absolutely won't count the units. They won't count them as real in, in your housing element. They'll say, that's great that you have that, but we're not counting those units towards your arena. Um, but on the other hand as well, if your community looks like, you know, they're not trying to encourage development so that they're in manners of, of development standards or impact fees or, or inclusionary policies or a combination thereof, trying to implicitly constrain development, mainly their tool is to say then your, your housing element's out of compliance, but, you know, if your housing element's been certified, you're good for, for years. But they came into a city of mine in LA County just in the middle of a housing element cycle and made us demonstrate that, that housing was still being built at a normal clip with the inclusionary policy in place. Good, thank you. You're welcome. Commissioners, any other questions at this time? Is there further presentation from staff? If, if I could, uh, Chair Comden, Planning Commissioner, just point one piece out too that may also help. Um, the city is still going through the certification process of our housing element. So HCD is actively reviewing our housing element uh, right now. So uh, though our housing element was adopted by city council in January, we're going through the process of going back and forth uh, with HCD um, on certification. So they will be acti actively asking these types of questions. Thank you. So, I'm sorry, is there further presentation from staff? There is not. All right. Well, then we will move to uh, public comment. Um, Michael, do we have uh, speakers tonight? Yes. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chair. We have eight speaker cards currently. Okay, very good. I will open the public hearing, and let's hear from the public, please. Our first speaker this evening is Carl Morehouse. Carl will be followed by Matt Bellow. Chair and Commission, uh, first is a, a point of personal privilege. Will all of you learn to speak into your microphones? Many of you are not used to using them, and some of us are losing our hearing, and when I'm at home even listening in. So speak into your microphone, it's very beneficial. Uh, I'm here tonight only because I'm here in support of, of the uh, efforts on the inclusionary housing ordinance. This is something when I sat up there, we wrestled with for a long time. As you know, we lost the opportunity to do that downtown with, with the redevelopment agency disappearing. Uh, and then on top of insult to injury, when we were moving forward, we had to wait for the court cases to be resolved. I know you wrestle with a lot of things up here. You keep in mind that you're an advisory uh, committee to, to the council who will make the final decision. And we, as the chair pointed out, we have a new council, we will have new staff, there's a lot of new stuff going on. But this has been a process that's been going on that's much needed because we've missed so many opportunities already with housing that's going up that we didn't have opportunities to snatch onto with an inclusionary ordinance. And while it may not be perfect, remember that the perfect is the enemy of the good, 
we've got to move forward and get something on the, on the books to start capturing the opportunity. There may be other changes that come down the line. Ordinances are not chiseled in stone. Again, they can be modified, repealed, replaced later down the line by uh, further councils. So as you take into consideration tonight how to deal with this, I think your analysis that uh, Kaiser Marston gave you was, was very interesting, very thorough. Based on my past experience, I think it was, it was pretty on, on point. And again, she was using conservative estimates. So uh, I think you should take that under advisement. But again, I'm here in support, and I know there are a number of other people who want to speak in, in support of the IHO as well. So I wish you luck with this, and, and we'll see where it goes forward uh, in terms of your deliberations and what you want to give to the council to, to uh, adopt eventually. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Morehouse. Next speaker is Matt Bellow, followed by Deborah Schrieber. Uh, good evening, Planning Commission. Um, I'm here to talk about um, the inclusionary housing ordinance. Um, I personally think right now our existing inclusionary housing ordinance is pretty strong. It's a se sequential uh, inclusionary housing ordinance, and then after 59 units, you do have the option of going to 20% um, for moderate income or 10% for very low income. Um, the reason that uh, you guys are seeing this from what I've seen in city council meetings is that um, due to the need for the Palmer fix, you know, we are looking to add rentals onto this, as you all know. Um, unfortunately, I think um, a lot of the uh, analysis that we're seeing here isn't taking into context the development that's been happening here in Ventura, as well as in our neighboring counties. Um, in your February discussions, Agora um, came up, as well as Goleta, as well. And I'm not seeing any concrete analysis of, of those um, inclusionary housing um, ordinances and what's actually, um, why those wouldn't work in Ventura as well. Um, I think that they're very strong and I think they should be looked at. Um, especially uh, here in Ventura, we, uh, it's strange, we actually have a higher AMI in Ventura County and uh, lower property values in Ventura County. So if anything, we should be able to have more aggressive inclusionary housing ordinance, uh, more aggressive inclusionary housing ordinance from my understanding. Additionally, um, Something I'm confused on is uh, we recently did approve the uh, Haley Point development, and that is 20% uh, of, of moderate inclusionary housing. So if that is a recent development that we did approve and we were able to uh, make the numbers work for 20%, um, why isn't this uh, addressed in the report? It's just a question, maybe I'm missing something, but if that could be addressed. Additionally, uh, regarding covenant, um, uh, limits. I'm, I'm sorry for the late email. I didn't realize that this was coming to the Planning Commission, but I did uh, talk about a book that I recently read um, uh, called Affordable City by uh, Shane Phillips, and he talked about how a lot of cities are actually getting away from covenant limits and that a lot of the historical criti critiques of these are not actually valid. And he did uh, share some, uh, he did uh, share some, some, uh, um, excuse me, some studies on that, which I shared with you on my email. So um, I know uh, Commissioner McCarty was asking about that in February, and I think he had some valid points, but um, I think that there are at least 10 examples in the, in the report uh, that, that we received for this meeting showing that there are perpetual uh, covenants in, uh, in about 10 cities. So I... I think it'd be good to ask why we can't do a perpetual, perpetual covenant in Ventura as well. So uh, with that said, that was a lot of information, but thank you for your time and, uh, and uh, good luck with this. Thank you, Mr. Bellow. 
Our next speaker is Deborah Schreiber, followed by Karen Flock. Good evening. I'm Deborah Schreiber. I'm a volunteer and a supporter of affordable housing. And I come here tonight to support the points brought out by the Social Service Task Force and Homes for All. Um, I know you've gotten those primarily that we need to act now and not delay any further with studies or other things um, that in lieu housing, in lieu fees are beneficial and we need them. And uh, that seven units should be a trigger point for affordable housing or for inclusionary housing. So um, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Schriever. Our next speaker is Karen Flock, followed by Judy Alexander. Good evening, Chair Comden and members of the Planning Commission. My name is Karen Flock. I'm the Deputy Director for Real Estate Development with the Housing Authority of the City of San Buenaventura, and I'm speaking on behalf of the authority. This has been a long time coming, and I urge you to recommend tonight that the City Council adopt the Inclusionary Housing Program Ordinance. Um, the inclusion, this is a, an important part of the city's strategy to address our affordable housing crisis, and it's only a part. Because it's just a piece of the puzzle, we urge you to make it a strong ordinance and to consider other carrots that may be available along with the stick. So basically, I'm urging you not to be so conservative and that for rental housing, the requirement be 15% very low income. This is the area of greatest need we believe that it is feasible, and the consultant's report touches on how state density bonus law helps make it feasible. And for for sale housing, the requirement should be 15% low income or 20% moderate income. This is consistent with the current ordinance, and for sale projects have been built under this ordinance. As proof of that, during the uh, last housing element period, more than the RENA goal for above moderate income housing was built. And as uh, Matt mentioned, recently in my neighborhood, the Haley Point project was not only approved, but it's under construction, and it includes 20% moderate income homes. Um, when developers know what the inclusionary requirements are, they will factor this into what they're willing to pay for land. So it's also appropriate to maybe look at some additional carrots. Um, this isn't my idea, but collection of impact fees could be deferred to certificate of occupancy. This would help developers with their interest costs, which are only going up, and not make any changes to projects or to the funds ultimately collected. Um, additionally, this inclusionary housing ordinance is an important tool to help um, meet the need to affirmatively further fair housing. And I also just want to mention, kind of as a side note, that the Housing Authority is currently leasing up 104 affordable apartments at Westview Village on the west side including uh, 21 apartments for homeless families. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Flock. Next speaker is Judy Alexander. Judy will be followed by Maria Navarro. Good evening. I'm Judy Alexander, and I'm a longtime 50-plus year resident of the city of Ventura and chair of the Ventura Social Services Task Force. And in that position, we have spent, along with Homes for All, studying a variety of cities and what different cities are doing, including our local neighbor, Oxnard, in looking at inclusionary housing. And so though we all totally appreciate all the staff time that's been put into it and their work, 
we are advocating for the strongest possible inclusionary housing that, is that we can have for a variety of reasons. One, it will increase inclusivity and decrease segregation in our city. That is essential. Second, it will allow for there to be people to associate with one another. It will allow for people to be housed in rates that they could afford. I was shocked when I learned that I could earn over $100,000 and qualify for affordable housing. The majority of our workers in this city do not earn near that amount, and they need to have decent, high-quality homes to live in. So Homes for All and BSSTF are strong advocates for having 15% very low income housing as a part of the ordinance, 15% low or 20% moderate in for sale projects. We are aware that housing has been built at that rate. We are also aware that we have missed so many opportunities because of the eight to 10 year process from the city's first stakeholder meeting regarding inclusionary housing to this point of bringing it to you today. So I am encouraging you to support the strongest possible inclusionary plan that you can have. I'm asking that we have a strong in lieu fee so that for those developers who choose not to do the affordable housing, we'll have sufficient funds that will allow develop other developers to access funds to build the affordable housing that is necessary. The city of Oxnard has asked to go from 10 units to six units. We are asking to go to seven. We strongly, I strongly encourage you to consider all options and to make the strongest possible recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Alexander. Our next speaker is Maria Navarro. Maria, we're gonna bring you over now and you should be able to unmute yourself. Thank you so much. Um, so hello everyone, I'm Mary Navarro, a senior policy advocate of cause and thank you so much for taking my comments tonight. I wish I um, could be there, but just to echo Judy's comments, I also started in support of the BSSCF and Homes for All letter um, and urge you planning commission to lower the affordability levels for the city's proposed inclusionary housing ordinance. Uh, and I just wanna kind of echo um, a little bit of what was in the letter about the fifth element housing cycle. I actually looked at the RENA, um, the HCD's annual progress reports and looked at it in the fifth cycle, 169.3%. Um, we actually met the above moderate RENA requirements um, by 169.3%, which is more than 2,500 units that were permitted, um, but we failed um, to meet the affordable housing requirements by a lot, you know. We permitted 12.2% of moderate income housing, 20.1% of low income, and 25.3% of very low income housing. Um, and so that's a total, in, in all of that was a total of 419 units um, that were permitted. Um, you know, it, it makes sense to me, looking at those numbers of what happened, um, that the 15% low income requirement 20% moderate income required for, for for sale projects um, it's adopted um, just because we just built so little of it um, for the for for rent category 15% very low income also makes sense because as Karen mentioned 
we also um, have a, 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 a percentage, a very high percentage of our renters in this county are cost burden. Um, so according to the California Housing Partnerships 2020 Ventura Housing Report, 88% of renters in the county are rent burden and 57% are extremely rent burden. I mean, it, it's just hard to over um, emphasize just how much is needed and how much is required right now to, to, to help people in this income category. Uh, uh, I would like to also point out kind of like what Matt Bella was saying, uh, that the city of Polita has an affordability level of more than 15% and the city of Oxnard is looking for a 15% inclusionary requirement as well. Um, and I, I finally want to say I appreciate, uh, you know, Ms. Um, Head uh, talking about the um, state laws and I was just wondering, you know, how AB 2011 is going to influence all of this as well. Um, and yeah, and just want to echo Karen's comments as well about um, incentives and the carrots that we could actually add to make, um, to alleviate these development costs and make them as well. Um, and I do want to finally echo Matt Bella's comments on the affordability comments, co covenants, sorry. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jackson Piper. Jackson will be followed by Sonia Flores. Jackson, we're bringing you over now. Thank you, Ms. Navarro. My apologies. Good evening, can you hear me? We can. Thank you. Uh, my name is Jackson Piper. I am with Ventura County Yimby. I'm not a Ventura resident, but uh, I am a, a resident in Thousand Oaks. I frequent Ventura uh, fairly often. Um, I'm speaking as a member of that group, a resident of Ventura County who is interested in seeing um, us address as a, as a whole society the housing concerns that really affect all of us um, that are not just limited to within the city of Ventura, within the city of Thousand Oaks, or within Ventura County um, alone. Um, I thought that uh, Ms. Head did a very thorough um, analysis of the problem and uh, of the potential for uh, inclusionary housing in different types of projects. Um, however, I have to hope that at some point soon, uh, the market will not be going so crazy as it has recently, and there will be some capability to build uh, new projects that are going to be more affordable than they realistically are right now um, for developers and uh, you know, uh, and builders. I think in this case, we really need to, uh, I appreciate being conservative, but I think in this case, we should try and aspire to um, the 15% very low income for rental and uh, either 15% uh, low income or 20% moderate income for for sale um, because really cutting down those numbers even further uh, you know eventually we're going to keep cutting it down to the point where we're not really getting much inclusionary housing anyway and then it's just going to be all market rate um, which there's definitely a need for but it doesn't, it's sort of a self-defeating action. Um, we need to find a balance point between um, projects being viable and um, housing being built for the people that otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it in this county. So please do that. Please um, 
proceed without stalling the process by, uh, you know, conducting further studies. Um, maybe move forward with the inclusionary um, uh, ordinance and then conduct studies afterwards to see if it's working or not and then adjust it as needed. Also include a strong in-lieu fee so that um, developers don't have an easy out of saying, oh, I'll just pay a small amount of money instead of building these affordable units. Um, the in-lieu fee can be adjusted in time. There's a Thousand Oaks resident. I have seen that happen before, unfortunately, and uh, would not like to see it happen unless it's uh, a dire situation where development is not happening, but it is an option. So please, uh, please go forward with this and give us as much housing as possible, affordable to everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Piper. Our next speaker is Sonia Flores. Sonia will be followed by Trevor Gotsman, and I'm bringing Sonia over now. Sonia, you should be able to unmute yourself. Okay, can you hear me? We can, yes. Great, thank you. Uh, good evening, Planning Commission members. My name is Sonia Flores, and I'm here today on behalf of Homes for All, and also as a resident of the City of Ventura. The city staff's proposed inclusionary housing requirements within the proposed ordinance are as follows. For rental, it's 15% low income, and for, for sale, it's 10% moderate income. The Homes for All and Venture Social Services Task Force continues to advocate for the following percentage to, of affordable housing to be included within the inclusionary, inclusionary housing update. For rental, we're asking for 15% very low income. For for sale, we're asking for 15% low income or 20% moderate income. Just for example, uh, the city of Goleta approved an inclusionary housing ordinance in 2019 that included a very low income percentage requirement in new rental housing projects, and they did no economic analysis. Their staff report says that AB 1505 allows cities to require up to 15% low and very low income rentals without triggering an economic feasibility analysis. Also, the city of Oxnard is now proposing updates to its inclusionary housing ordinance and their staff report of November 2022 contains no fiscal analysis. The city of Oxnard staff is recommending increasing their inclusionary requirement from 10 to 15%. And concerning the for sale portion of the inclusionary housing ordinance, if adopted, the recommendation of city of Ventura staff would weaken the current ordinance. The current ordinance was passed in 2006 and allows a 20% moderate income requirement for for sale projects. Since that time, many house, I'm sorry. Oh, since that time, many housing projects were built that clearly penciled out for the developers while developing units affordable to low and moderate income residents. We do not want the city to move backwards in this update of the inclusionary housing ordinance. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ms. Flores. Our next and final speaker is Trevor Gotsman. Trevor, you should be able to unmute yourself. Good evening, commissioners, city staff, community members. Thank you. Um, Paul Morehouse uh, started this uh, public communication and I urge you to take, be encouraged to be brave. Um, Judy Alexander pointed out very succinctly how important it is to house the very low income. We've got a tremendous housing problem with homeless people as well. And the important thing is to encourage the private 
and the public to interface much more smoothly and open up paths, open up opportunities. And I still feel that, you know, borders between properties should be, uh, we should be building community gardens and extending uh, things beyond what we're talking about tonight. So these are my visions that I would keep, you know, working with Parks and Rec and the community and the city and everybody involved because we're all here picking up after each other and creating this wonderful community that we live in that we want to maintain. And um, so we have to look forward as well as we look back and um, see and, and include everybody and everything and pick up because we've got a lot of picking up to do and use um, those that are willing that have come to these meetings and extend our reach out. But as I said, it takes, um, this hard work takes the courage so i just wanted to speak tonight to encourage you to to be brave and know that you've got support throughout this community thank you very very much everybody good night thank you mr gotsman that concludes our speakers on item number three very good thank you with that i'll close the public meeting and bring it back to the commission for deliberation discussion who would like to start? Commissioner Farkas. I have a couple questions. So do we know what the cost of the Kaiser Martin study was for this additional study that was just done? Thank you, Commissioner Farkas. I don't have all the invoices collected. Kathy, Kathy do you have an approximate? Yeah. Yeah, it'll take me a second to get there. So maybe we'll just move on and I'll come back to you. But I, but I can find it. And on that, so in February, we originally approved 15% um, for rentals and um, on low and 15% for sale on moderate. And then going back and um, looking at everything it came back with a 15% rental and a 10% for sale. And I just wanted to see, you know, we went backwards on it at a probably a significant cost to the city. And so that's why I'm a little frustrated with this process. I, that's why I voted no the last time to go back and do this. I thought what we had approved the last time was, was pretty good. Um, does anybody know how many units have been built in Goleta? Because I know a couple of the public comments have come up and says that they've got this, this great ordinance, but are they actually building homes there? Are they building I, very low? I have, I have answers. <laughs> um, if, if, if I can jump in, this is Kathy. Um, because actually, um, in response to the correspondence that was written, I actually I did some research and, and um, on the various ordinances and, and, and a comment was made in, in an email that I hadn't included those cities in my survey, which is correct. I hadn't included Glita and Argura Hills, um, not in any malevolent fashion. I just hadn't. I've subsequently in, in my survey, which I keep updating, I've included them. But anyway, so I've researched the, the two cities and in Agura Hills, um, there hasn't been an inclusionary housing unit built since 2013. They are in the midst now of revamping as part of their housing element process, their inclusionary, 
to um, add some carrots, as was mentioned by a number of the speakers. So to add some incentives for developers to want to, to produce the affordable units. And so they're, they're looking at, oh, put that too many things up at once. Um, and then in Goleta, the situation is there are three projects that have been on the books for um, the last year or so. Um, two of them have been stalled by um, water issues. And then one of them is a project that appears to be a joint project between the Santa Barbara Housing Authority, Santa Barbara County Housing Authority, and a private developer. That includes a, very, a large affordable component and a large market rate component. The last hearing on that project was last April. So I don't know where that project stands. But I think that the question is appropriate because a number of cities, I think well-meaning, have um, very strict requirements they're not necessarily panning out to getting those units constructed. And um, just to mention too on the Ventura project that's mentioned a number of times on the, that it was built with 20% moderate, that's also a section 65915 density bonus project. And I think it's really important to, to say that when you do inclusionary, as I said in my presentation, when you do inclusionary, you can expect density bonus to be used and you can also expect to get um, stricter stricter um, income and affordability standards and then are, are then are required by your inclusionary by the fact that it just makes sense for a developer to fulfill on a rental project the very low income so i i just think that's something important to to keep in mind um, as you look at this the budget back to this project um the new analysis the budget was twenty four thousand um, dollars i don't think we spent it all okay thank you very much for that a lot of you know the housing costs and what we're dealing with um, constantly is supply and demand and I think it's important to be able to not constrain builders to build I think we need to encourage them and like they said you know having the density bonuses and and getting people to actually build homes um, will be helpful and I think we all really would love to see these lower numbers put into the ordinance. I'm, you know, on a, on a personal level. If the numbers don't work, the numbers don't work. And I think we've kind of looked at that and looked at that. And like I said, I was I was a little frustrated when you know the city's gone out and you know spent another 20k to look at things, and the numbers came back worse. So I, I think that's something that, that could potentially continue to happen. So I was very happy with what we originally approved and that's where I am at right now. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Other comments? Yes, Commissioner Zucker. Great. Um, before we get started, I wanted to, to share um, uh, uh, just a disclosure that uh, my, my day job, my organization I work for, cause. Um, you know, has taken a position in, in support of the Homes for All letter that, that you all received. And, um, you know, city's attorney's office short shared that, did, you know, it wasn't a conflict of interest. But, um, yeah, but just wanted to, to disclose that. Um, I, uh, I, I want to talk about the reasons that I think it's worth, you know, pushing for a little bit deeper levels of affordability and, and um, you know, why it's kind of been worth it, I think, to, you know, go down this road and, you know, um, yeah, I, I uh, you know, initially kind of wanted to push it forward to, to city council, but with a, with a higher level of, of affordability. 
Um, you know, but I think it's, it's valuable. We got, got some additional information. Um, I, I do think there's, you know, some, some limits to that information, and I'll, I'll, I'll share about that in a bit. But um, I think one of the things that that, that snapshot shows is, is just how bad the situation is right now. Uh, you know, looking at these charts that, that show $3,000, $4,000, you know, for, for a one-bedroom apartment, right? Uh, you know, over a million dollars for a, for a single-family home in our, in our community is, is just, it's, it's really astonishing and really devastating. And, and um, you know, I, I think it shows what a lot of our community is struggling with, um, the reasons that we've seen, uh, you know, rates of homelessness skyrocket in our community. Um, you know, and even when we talk about allocating 15% to low income just on the rental side, right, uh, you know, the, I don't know if people know, and it wasn't in the, in the presentation or anything, what the threshold for low income is in, in Ventura County, but it's over $100,000 a year. So the 15% of people, you know, low income are, are folks, those are, for, for a family of four, that, that's making six figures, right? Very low income is about $62,000, $63,000, right? And currently we have zero for that, for, for all the families under, under 60 plus thousand dollars a year. You know, and those are the folks that are most at risk of going into homelessness, most at risk of, of leaving our community. Um, so I, I think that's big picture, you know, uh, why, you know, I've been interested in trying to see, particularly if we can get some very low units, you know, I think there's a lot of those, those families that are, that are really struggling, and, and I think, you know, we need to do more. You know, as, as uh, you know, was, was shared, we're, we're actually doing more than, than uh, you know, we're being asked by the state to hit our, our above moderate income RENA numbers. So we're building, you know, uh, we're hitting our goals and surpassing our goals for market rate. We're not hitting our goals or even close for affordable housing. Um, and that's, that's where I'd like to focus. Um, you know, I, I appreciate the models that are used in this study, um, you know, but you study economics and they'll, they teach you models are powerful and are important to, to, to see, but models depend on assumptions, right? Um, and and they're, they're not perfect. Uh, you know, we had models that said if California raised the minimum wage to, you know, $15 an hour, there would be mass unemployment. Didn't happen, right? Um, you know, and I think as, as we, we've seen in the discussion, models can sometimes be based on assumptions and inputs that are somewhat arbitrary, right? There's been a lot of fluctuation. We're, we're in an incredibly wacky housing market right now um, with between COVID, inflation, interest rates, um, and you can choose a cutoff point of, you know, go to the last 12 months, last 18 months, you know, last six months, but you're ultimately kind of making a judgment call. Um, and so I just want to, you know, share that that's useful information, but it's not infallible. Um, you know, I, I do think some, some things that are, you know, worth taking into account, you know, locally are we did the streamlining ordinance that saved a lot of costs and time for developers. You know, that's something that's, it's a local information that's not necessarily, you know, taken into account in that, that model. Um, you know, we have had a fair amount of recent examples of projects that are going above the affordability levels that, that the, this model says are even possible. Um, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of projects use that density bonus, right? Uh, you know, I would say in the time I've been on Planning Commission, probably, what, 95% plus projects have, have been density bonus projects. And so, you know, I think to say, oh, well, you know, this is only feasible if we use the density bonus, right? Um, well, developers are using density bonus. It's a very powerful, you know, tool for 
for developers, and and they're they're taking you know taking full use of it. Um, you know, and I, I don't know, I, you know, being being on the planning commission over the last last four years, I think I've developed just a little bit of healthy skepticism when you know applicants come before us and say, you know, a greater level of affordability isn't feasible. Um, you know, sometimes, yeah, we, we just one of the last projects we <laughs> rejected, you know, come to city council and, you know, they kind of shake the money tree and, <laughs> you know, some more affordable units pop out and, you know, so sometimes, you know, it's, hey, it's their right. If I was running a business, I mean, I'd charge whatever I could for whatever I was selling, right? Um, you know, but it's our business to be accountable to the public, right? Um, so, you know, I think there were some interesting ideas. I, you know, I, I, um, I'm not totally sure if the, the you know, um, what's proposed by, by Homes for All is, you know, is, is going to be feasible and, you know, it's hard to, to know unless you do it. Um, you know, it might be worth, worth, uh, worth trying. Um, you know, I also think there was an interesting point raised, uh, you know, about the, the Oxnard Ordinance, which is looking at, you know, 10% uh, low and 5% very low. Um, rather than kind of what we're looking at of, you know, 15% low, you know, for rentals. Um, I think that could be an interesting compromise um, between what, what, you know, Ms. Sproul is proposing and, and what our, our, you know, city staff has recommended. Um, but I do think, you know, KMA acknowledged, uh, you know, multiple times throughout the report and verbally that they're taking a conservative approach. It's on us to make a judgment call whether we want to take a conservative approach. Um, you know, but, but I think you know, ultimately, uh, you know, I, I, um, I think we are in the kind of crisis that's worth trying to do the best we can. Um, and even in their conservative approach, they found that 15% of very low is feasible using the density bonus. Um, and we are seeing the vast majority of, of developers using the density bonus. Um, I wanna share uh, the, um, also in that report uh, was a list of communities and their, uh, their inclusionary housing ordinances. Um, and I looked at that list and wrote down uh, a, a sublist of communities that went beyond the 15% uh, low. That's kind of the default set by the state and you know, what we're, we're considering for, for rental. Um, so if you'll bear with me, I just wanna read their names. Uh, Campbell, Colma, Contra Costa County, Coronado, Davis, Palo Alto, Pasadena, Petaluma, Redwood City, San Francisco, San Jose, San Mateo County, Sonoma County, Sunnyvale, and Union City. Um, all of those communities went beyond, and, and most of them did something like what, what Oxnard's considering, kind of a mix of low and, and very low, and I think you know, that, that would really be worth considering. Um, just a side note, you know, interested in the point uh, Mr. Bellow raised around trying to do a, a permanent covenant um, rather than a kind of 55-year covenant for the affordable units. You know, to me, I don't see any reason why they should expire in 55 years. It'd be nice to, to keep them affordable. Um, but I think overall, I'd rather have a strong inclusionary housing ordinance and later change it if development stops and, you know, we find that, that it's, you know, having, you know, negative impacts um, than, than actually weaken our inclusionary housing ordinance from even where it is now um, and then, you know, get a bunch of development that, you know, with a lower affordability requirement that then we can never get those units back, right? Um, so anyway, I know I've been talking for a while. I, I procedurally, I'd love to see, uh, you know, see if there's support on the commission for to go, to go a bit deeper affordability than, than what staff's recommending here. Um, you know, if that falls flat and we don't have the votes for it, that's, you know, okay, and we can, you know, go back to, you know, back to square one. But, um, 
but you know, I'd like to kind of try it out when we get to motions. So um, that's all for now. Thank you, Commissioner. Other comments? Commissioner McCarty. I have, I actually have some questions I'd like to bring up regarding the, um, the IHO, the ordinance as, it, as it's written, if I may. And um, one of them is, is section 2520040, the inclusion, inclusionary housing requirement. Um, section C says, for purposes of calculating the number of inclusionary units required, any additional dwelling units authorized as a density bonus under the city density bonus ordinance or state law will not be counted in determining the required number of inclusionary units. And th the answer to why that is, is stated might be ob obvious, but it's, it's escaping me. Um, is there a reason why uh, extra units under the, uh, awarded under the density bonus are not cannot be counted with regard to inclusionary housing. I think it's a good question, staff. Do we have feedback on that? I do. Yeah, Kathy, I was gonna say if you wanna jump in or I can. Right, the Napa case um, prohibits you from doing that. So you can't impose affordable housing requirements on density bonus units that are in excess of what's required by the density bonus. So they very specifically establish that it can't be done and that's why it's written that way. Okay. Simple answer. Okay, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. Um, now, now, here comes my question that I, I alluded to uh, earlier. Section 2520090. Um, in, lieu pay, in lieu fees shall be paid according to a fee schedule adopted by the City Council and adjusted annually, et cetera, et cetera. So, is, is there a mechanism in place now which defines how this will actually happen? Does, does somebody actually have that in their job description? to update the, uh, the in-lieu fees annually? Uh, thank you, uh, Commissioner uh, McCarty. So we, we update our um, building permit fees, impact fees, and associated development fees on an annual basis. Um, so we will just include that in, in that process of updating our fees and um, establishing a fee schedule and putting that on there. So yeah, that is something we can um, uh, roll into our staff duties. Okay, so that'll get recorded somewhere as a, an annual? Yes, duty. it gets adopted okay. by council, a fee schedule that then is posted and used for all fee calculations. Okay. Um, in that same section, a little further down, talking about off-site construction, location of off-site inclusionary units. It states, the off-site inclusionary units shall be located within one half mile of the market rate development that is subject to the inclusionary housing requirement, unless the units are located within a moderate or higher resource area as defined by the California Tax Credit Allocation Committee, et cetera. So can somebody give me a layman's interpretation of what that is saying? Kathy, you wanna jump in or I can? Uh, sure, I can take a shot and then and then you can jump in. That came out of our discussions when we were having the focus groups with the various, with the nonprofits and the housing advocates and the for-profit developers. The half mile had been the original suggestion and then a number of, of people in the focus groups pointed out that, um, well, A, a half mile ends up B, 
being kind of a dramatic change, but that there are these high resource areas that are areas that tend to be of higher income, but that tend then not to have affordable housing in them. And so the idea would be, even if that was more than a half mile away from the site, that would be a good location to spread the inclusionary units around town. And so that, that was, anyway, the short answer was brought up during the focus groups. Okay, so, so what this clause is saying is that it is desirable to have the offsite inclusionary units in those moderate and higher resource areas. Correct. Okay, okay, that explains it, thank you. Um, uh, in, the, in the same uh, paragraph, uh, subsection four, building design, quality, and maintenance standards shall be of good quality and consistent with contemporary standards for new housing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Who determines good quality and how is good quality confirmed? If it's stated, it shall be, it says shall be of good quality, shall is a requirement. So how do we mandate good quality? Ned, are you taking that? I was seeing if Kathy want to jump in. I'm no, I, I don't want to take that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I, I, the, the question underlying this perhaps is uh, we, if, if we're going to put good quality in this document, we need a definition of good quality. Yeah, thank you, Commissioner McCarty. These units are going to go through the normal development process too that other development projects do go, go through. Um, uh, you know, they go through design review committee or in the appropriate boards that review the design. Um, I think the intention here is to not end up with inclusionary units or inclusionary projects that are substandard in construction or um, significantly look different than other projects, but to have them designed and constructed with good, good quality materials um, uh, so that they are kind of equitable in the type of units that are constructed for a market rate. So they'll go through kind of normal review process that market rate projects do um, in the same fashion. Okay. So, so the underlying assumption is that the current city building codes already assure good, what may be defined as good quality. Correct. Okay. Um, a little bit further down, same, same section. It says a market rate developer may enter in, into an agreement with an affordable housing developer to construct, own, and operate the off-site inclusionary units. Are market rate developer and affordable housing developer uh, formal designations applied to developers, or are we just saying a market rate developer is just whoever happens to be building the latest market rate units? I can jump, I can jump in on that one. So, so the notion was if you accepted that, if somebody accepted that option as a developer and they were not an experienced affordable housing developer, the goal of the city would be to have them choose a developer who that was their area of expertise. That can be a for-profit developer or a non-profit developer. Um, or it could be the original developer if they choose to do it, but, but the objective would be to get a, a mission-driven affordable housing developer to do it. Okay. Thank you. Um, um, section 2520-100, uh, restrictions on ownership units. This, 
this section really kind of concerns me um, because I don't know who will track and monitor some of these things. Uh, with regard to sale and resale, uh, initial sales prices and resale price of ownership inclusionary units shall be set to an affordable housing cost calculated by the city on the first day of each calendar quarter. So uh, it is, is this done now and, and where is that recorded? I can jump in on what its plan is and then, and then Netta can perhaps talk about what's being done with the program as it exists. The idea is, is if you set the affordable sales price on the first day of every quarter or once a quarter, once a calendar quarter, then you don't have um, people buying and selling and gaming the system where that on Wednesday the interest rate was one thing and on Thursday it was a different interest rate. And so if you set it quarterly, then you get a consistent price for that whole quarter. And then, and then, if it, uh, units or inclusionary units are being sold, they have to close within that within that quarter. Or they get reevaluated. Um, it depends from community to community. If you have, and this is where I'll I'll defer to to Netta. If you have internal staff who can do it, then they're the ones who would produce that once a quarter based on what the ordinance says. Hi, I think I can give you a perspective of what we're doing currently. Um, we base it on the, and I don't know all of the technical aspects of it, but it's essentially the interest rate at the end of December, the last uh, posted in interest rate, and we only do that annually. Um, so that's how the, the pricing is, is determined. Okay, so this, this will then be kind of an, an extra duty to be incurred if, if we need to do this every quarter correct okay, okay thank you um, a resale restriction shall be entered into on each change of ownership to maintain the household income restriction on the ownership inclusionary unit for at least 45 years this is a, f a really detailed requirement in that someone is going to have to keep active track of all of the inclusionary units throughout the city and when each one changes ownership for at least 45 years. Are we plugging all of these new requirements into job descriptions? We currently do this. It, 45 years is the, the general uh, restriction period for ownership units and uh, the initial sale to a, to a buyer uh, includes a resale restriction requiring them to sell it to an income eligible buyer in subsequent sales and, and we manage that. Okay, within 180 days, correct? The, the next paragraph uh, goes on to state inheritance of an inclusionary unit by any other person whose household is not income eligible shall require resale to an eligible household as soon as feasible, but not more than 180 days from when the estate is settled. So that's something else to be monitored. That is something else to be monitored and it is not currently something we do. However, these, uh, these sales are um, 
restricted by have deed restrictions on them so we are now aware of previously in our older units we did not have those restrictions recorded um, and so we are aware of any transactions because it's all discoverable uh, for for each sale so yes it would so, be something we so would those transactions would be flagged and somebody at the city would correct see that. Okay. correct mm -hmm. Um, owner occupancy. Owners of inclusionary units shall use and occupy the inclusionary unit as the owner's principal residence for at least 10 months out of any 12-month period. How will we monitor and enforce that? So maybe, and, and Jenny, please go into further detail. Just an overarching response, and then Jenny can go into further detail. So we, we currently do um, this with our existing housing stock. We partner and contract with the uh, housing authority that helps uh, the city staff, support city staff in monitoring um, our affordable housing stock, which we can, will continue to do moving forward overarchingly. But Jenny, if there's further detail here. So we currently have a similar requirement. Uh, these are owner occupancy units and, or housing units and uh, it's not infallible. It's, it is policy that they have to be owner occupants and that they have to uh, occupy it for 12 months. They, they can do on hardship requests if they need to move away for a temporary amount of time. It is a little bit difficult to track that because it's not an actual uh, real estate transaction, so we um, have to rely on on the owners to be responsible about that. But we do, the Housing Authority does administer the program and they do um, annual uh, occupancy verifications. The owners of the inclusionary units have to certify each tenant's income at the time of the initial rental. The owner shall obtain and review documents that demonstrate the total income, such as income tax returns, and submit such information on a form approved by the city. And this might be a question for counsel, for Mr. Hogan. Um, is, is the requirement to uh, give tax returns to your landlord and, the, and, and further to the city? Is that, is that legal? Is that usual? Um, excuse me, Commissioner McCarty. Could you refer to the language one more time? Okay, um, the owner, so this is talking about the owner of rental inclusionary units. They shall certify the tenant's household income to the city or designee at the time of initial rental. The owner shall obtain and review documents that demonstrate the prospective renter's total income, such as income tax returns. Uh, yes, that is appropriate. Okay, good. That answers that question. Um, I'd like to follow up on um, Mr. Bellow's comment and the comment from Commissioner Zucker that was made regarding the length of the covenant. I would also like to open up the discussion as to why we can't have a, an indefinite covenant, a perpetual covenant, rather than the 45 or 55 years, which is already in the, um, in the proposed ordinance. Um, I'd like to see a perpetual covenant if there's no reason not to. I, I can I can take a shot at, at this, um, and, and then anybody else who wants to jump in. 
I think on rental, that makes perfect sense. So I think what I've been recommending in the programs that I'm working on is to say that it's at least 55 years or until it's no longer put to a residential use. So it's just to create something so that if suddenly this isn't a residential neighborhood anymore and it's not residentially zoned, then it's no longer required to be affordable. But under every circumstance, it's required to be 55 years or forever as long as it's residential. So um, that's my recommendation for just a little bit of a nuance on that. Um, on ownership, I think it's trickier. I think that um, over time, if, you, if the unit has to be sold and resold at what will likely be not much of a gain and, and po quite possibly a loss, give, you know, people who bought 10 years ago an affordable unit are today probably facing an affordable cost that was less than what they paid for. So you have owners who have taken all of the downside risk and gotten really none of the upside benefit. And this becomes, I think, a policy matter. So this is this isn't a, this is just a policy matter for you all to consider is are you trying to create a unit that stays forever, which is likely the case, or are you trying to help a family create some equity and then be able to move up and out, which is another policy that, that I've seen in these programs. So the 45 years sort of creates the blend of that, of you have people buying and selling, buying and selling at affordable, but then at some point it, it goes to market and somebody made some equity. But more importantly to me then, back from the financial perspective is, when you have property owners who don't have a lot of chance for um, equity appreciation and their house needs more and more repairs over time, there's a natural incentive not to do them because you're not going to be able to make it up when you when you resell. And so, and just different people, different homeowners have different resources. So it just becomes tricky. Um, I, again, this is a policy matter, but those are just my points on that. Okay, thank you. I'm sorry, if we can have, um, we have Ethan Walsh, who is our uh, consultant attorney on the line too. Um, Ethan, do you mind chiming in on this as well? He's muted. Thank you, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. I can't seem to figure out how to turn my camera on, but um, but um, neither when when I was elevated, um, I, I missed part of your part of your request. Could you repeat it for me, please? Sure, Ethan, um, Commissioner Bakari, do you mind repeating it for Mr. Walsh? As basically, it boils down to um, I, w I would be in favor of a. Uh, perpetual covenant rather than the 45 or 55 years written into the current proposed ordinance. And I would, I was just curious as my question as posed was, is there any reason why we couldn't or shouldn't go to a perpetual covenant? Right. So I, I did hear that part actually. So, um, I, I think, I think Kathy handled that question pretty well. Um, as far as rental, um, you know, I, I think I've seen that quite a bit too. The, the one caveat I would say is that when you have projects that are subsidized with other forms of financing, for example, tax credits in particular, there are some challenges if you have perpetual, um, if you have uh, perpetual covenants because the, um, 
when they finance those projects, part of the assumption that they make uh, when they are um, obtaining the tax credits is that there will eventually be equity at the end of the at the end of the covenant term. And so with those projects, I think there's a bit more of a challenge to perpetual covenants, but I have seen a lot of communities as to inclusionary units that they do have perpetual covenants. I think they work in in ownership. I think, as, as I mentioned, uh, Kathy covered that well. Um, the one thing I would say is that, as, as you may know, when we talk about you know ownership of real property, there's a kind of a bundle of sticks that is associated with that where you have um, you know, certain, certain things that come with ownership. And one of those is the assumption that eventually there will be, um, you know, the ability to resell that property, uh, and, and benefit from the, uh, from the, um, from the equity that you gain. That's one of the real key, uh, components of, of home ownership. And, and one of the things that people look to, uh, also the ability to borrow against it and that type of thing. If, if you limit the, um, if you limit the affordability uh, perpetually for ownership units, you are you are taking kind of a fundamental component of the ownership um, structure from those folks, and in some in some cases it, it does you know cause a disincentive to to reinvest in the house, and and, and I have seen in programs where um, it causes some frustration amongst buyers because they don't really understand that fully at the time they buy the house, and then when they realize that they are uh, kind of limited in what they can get when they eventually have to move on. Um, they, they have some frustration associated with that. So that's that's my thought. But ultimately, as, as Kathy mentioned, I do think it's a policy issue. Okay, good, thank you. My overall impression of, of what's being proposed tonight is that I think that uh, KMA and Ms. Head have done a tremendous job in their analysis, in their second and follow-up analysis. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with, with the output. Um, I also want to acknowledge that I hear what my neighbors say. I hear the comments from VSSTF representatives. I hear the comments from Homeless for All. I am uh, and, appreciative of the comments of my fellow uh, commissioners. Um, but my, my view is this. I think the analysis and experience of uh, KMA and Ms. Head have, have shown that there, there exists a tipping point. I believe, uh, I, I'm familiar with, with tipping points and we have to be very cognizant of the tipping point which would be detrimental to the, the, what we're trying to achieve. Uh, we want more affordable housing. Nobody denies that. I don't deny that. But we have to be aware of the point at which the regulations we put in place will discourage rather than encourage developers from building the affordable housing we need. Um, I think that Ms. Head has, has found that tipping point and I, I am very much inclined to agree with her analysis and uh, I'm in favor of the, the numbers uh, with regard to the percentages of uh, 
low, low income units for, rental, for rentals and moderate income units for ownership uh, that are proposed in her, uh, in her analysis. So that's, that's where I am right now. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Davis, comments, questions? Um, I, yeah, there's the numbers again, getting me all, but the, I, I, yeah, and I feel like Commissioner Farkas that I thought what we did before was good. So it's disappointing to hear that it's changed, you know, to the lower numbers. Um, I, um, and I, there are so many, the state density bonuses that are coming online. There's a lot of really great opportunities that are coming up for um, developers that want to go in that direction and then get those bonuses that then, I, it's kind of funny because I actually was sort of thinking like, yeah, we all talk about like, oh, these density bonuses are great because it'll create more affordability, but then it also creates strife within the community of like, there's not enough parking and this going up taller, you know, and so it's, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition, I guess. Um, I, I definitely support, you know, having as much affordability as we can. Um, it's, and, but I don't, you know, economics is a little bit out of my realm for sure in terms of the, the housing market. So I would want to defer to her, to the analysis has been done by the experts, really, because I, you know, I don't, I don't have more than that. And that I know that we have a lot of, we have, you know, groups in our community that are pursuing, you know, they do 100% affordability and they work that out and, and the opportunities coming from the state. So I, I want to support the, what what's being proposed. And I think in terms of the covenant, I think, you know, there hasn't been, we haven't seen like what the the difference is by going with without a covenant. And so I think at this time, that's like, a, I mean, that's an interesting point to consider for the future, but I think I would rather just get this going and approve it. And as we said, you know, it's flexible and things change and we could, um, it could be, something that's analyzed in the future um, and potentially amended because um, I would rather get something going and support it and get it going. So I, I think that's where I'm at right now, listening to everything and thinking that I don't really have any kind of additional valuable information about economics. So that's Thank you, Commissioner. Vice Chair Lager, please. Comments? Yes. Thank you. Um, Wow, this is a, an incredibly difficult subject. Um, I had two kind of quick questions. I just, Netta, if you could explain one more time quickly, kind of the relationship between the density bonus and the and the, the IHO, and how they affect each other. Um, you know, if we pass an IHO that has a certain percentage, then is the density bonus automatically applied to those projects, or can you just clarify that for me? Sure, um, so the inclusionary housing ordinance would be what a project is required to um, build in terms of inclusionary units within their project. State density bonus law allows um, certain thresholds and amounts of units based on formulas they've established in their law that can be used for a developer to increase their density and get concessions, um, incentives basically to um, relaxation and standards to build them. So the uh, developer for a project could uh, meet its inclusionary housing, go deeper into affordability to meet state density bonus requirement and fulfill both requirements. 
uh, together. So that's how they relate. Perfect, thank you. Um, and then one thing that hasn't come up much in our discussions is the in lieu fees. I, I wondered if Kathy had any stats on how often developers actually go down the in lieu fee route as opposed to building the affordable units. Do we have any stats on that? So the situation on in lieu fee is in a number of jurisdictions, in lieu fees are allowed by right. So a developer can choose to pay the in lieu fee. In a number of jurisdictions, they're only allowed, this is two ends of the, the, the cycle, are only allowed to pay an extreme hardship. And then somewhere in between is where most cities fall in. And in, uh, in lieu fee that's set very close to the affordability gap, a developer, if they have the right to choose it with, with no um, limitation, will generally choose the in lieu fee. Um, because then they get to keep all the upside potential from their project and they have a known amount of money that it's going to cost them as opposed to who knows how much it's going to end up being the affordability gap, et cetera. So it's important on an in lieu fee then to be careful when you're trying to encourage production to have an in lieu fee that isn't too attractive, which is what a number of, of the commenters said, so that every developer, if they, if they have unfettered right to use it, will just take it. Um, you can then use that money to you know, provide leverage to affordable housing that's dedicated to affordable housing. And that was part of that in lieu fee analysis we did last February to say how, how far that money would go. But all things being equal, if the developer is allowed to pay the fee by right, they'll pay the fee. Perfect, that, that was great, thank you. So, you know, as I've been listening to everyone, and honestly, I, you know, I could say, well, I pretty much agree, even though the, the opinions have been somewhat variable, <laughs> I think we can all agree that we could all agree with each other. Like, it's just a very complicated subject. Um, you know, we're trying to predict the future. We're trying to understand and mitigate the repercussions of what we're doing tonight. And I think that's really hard to do. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate Kathy's presentation and the amount of work that went into that. However, I would say that that was a, even if it wasn't necessarily a snapshot in time, as she integrated a lot of, um, you know, over time things like she using a year's worth of data or information, you know, our market right now is all over the place. And I, I'm, I'm hesitant to trust all the decisions that we make tonight on this one analysis. So I guess what I'm getting at is I would actually uh, agree with Commissioner Zucker. I, I feel like, you know, the, the objectives of the IHO, um, you know, we have two objectives we're trying to reach, which are, is to encourage development, but also to create affordable housing. And I, I feel like the state has created so much uh, for cities to encourage development, whether we want to or not, we're seeing that already, um, that you know, maybe it is our job to encourage the affordable housing. And I, I, so I would actually like to go down the road of making the IHO a little bit stronger um, and you know, recognizing that, having said that, that I, I don't want to not do it at all. Like I, you know, I wanna make sure we leave tonight with, with something to, 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 um, to give to city council. But I, I just feel like we're really going to miss an opportunity if we don't try to um, meet an objective of an inclusionary housing ordinance, which is to create more affordable units for our city. Um, I, I, a couple of speakers spoke of, you know, integrating communities and, 
you know, having a place for people that work in our city to also live. And if we're not even looking at very low income, then, then we're kind of, you know, missing the point um, of an inclusionary housing ordinance from, from my chair. So I would definitely um, like to see, you know, us maybe look at the rental as, well, so I can, I'll just list it out. So I would support, um, Perpetuity on rental projects, um, unless there's a zoning change, as Kathy discussed, for the covenant, um, but limit the covenant for ownership to 45 years. I think that all makes sense. Um, I'd like also would like to see stronger in lieu fees. I'm not sure how we do that, how, how we quantify that tonight, but um, I think that's important just based on what we just talked about. And then, you know, maybe go back to where we were at in February, or even a little stronger, maybe 10% low income, 5% very low for rentals, 15% low, and the 20% mod, or the 20% moderate for ownership. That's kind of where I'm at, um, but I'm definitely willing to talk a little bit more. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair. Other, other comments? Okay. I want to bring it back to uh, the letter that was submitted uh, by Homes for All. There's a lot of uh, very intelligent people who are signatures on that letter. I want to read a, uh, an excerpt of it. Commissioner Zucker spoke to it um, in a certain generality, but I, I want to read you a portion of it. The city is meeting the need of the above moderate income housing. And as we know, that's a six-figure you know, income. Uh, during the period of 2013 through 21, it met 103.6% of the RENA need for above moderate income households, but it only met 15.9% of the need for extremely low and very low income households, 9.8% of the need for low income households, and 11.4% of the need for moderate income households. What that means is we're 90% off of what we could be, should be doing according to these targets. Um, it goes on to state, a strong inclusionary housing ordinance is one of the few tools that the city has to address its requirements uh, to affirmatively uh, further fair housing. I thought this sentence was very interesting coming. It will help to address historic patterns of segregation. And that's something that uh, I hadn't really considered uh, before, which is where are the affordable houses being built? Uh, and it, it got me thinking about why I feel that in-lieu fees are uh, important to have, have very strong ones, because uh, I want the developer to build affordable housing within the unit they're building, not so that we accumulate money in a particular area and build it somewhere else, that those people are somewhere else. Uh, that's that housing red line that I don't want to exist. I want to live in a community where everyone of all sorts live together and commingle. That's being social. Um, I, we're an advisory board, and in such, uh, the final decision will go to council. But I want to send a strong message that this is a community that wants to do right by those of lesser means, that we want and need people uh, that don't have tremendous incomes in our community. And so I'm gonna advocate for the strongest um, percentages of affordability in, in this that, that we can 
we can muster, taking into account the economics of it. I wish we had someone from uh, a developer standpoint who got up and spoke tonight telling us straight to our faces that this is not possible, that we will not be able to build. Uh, maybe they're keeping their powder dry until the final decision makers um, have the opportunity to consider this, but I wish they were here tonight. Obviously, we have many advocates in the community that speak to the affordability and how we can tackle that. But, you know, there are communities uh, in, in our state um, that aren't doing what we could be doing. Uh, in Carmel and La Jolla and places like that are very nice places. But that isn't the profile of Ventura. Ventura is a working class town with many people and many generations of people who have been here that don't have large incomes. And uh, the, the economic state of the county and the city, for that matter, are less uh, on a trajectory than many other portions of the state. We're, we're not doing as well as we could. And I don't want to drive out people uh, that have been here simply because they can't afford to. And the past 15, 10, 15 years, it's been an incredible acceleration in costs here. And many people um, on their, are on their way out simply because they can't afford to be here. And that's, that's not a good sign. So I'm going to advocate for the strongest uh, possible um, percentages of affordability. Um, on the permanent covenant issue, um, I think on the rentals it is a good idea. And for some of the reasons given about the purchases, because if you're not going to make money on the sale, you're not going to invest in that unit, uh, I think the 45-year covenant is long enough. Most people do not stay in their home for 45 years. So in that way, it could be a bit of a luck of the draw if someone purchases it in the, last, in the end of that 45 years, they might benefit from that. But that can be addressed uh, in the future. Uh, as many people have said, whether in written form or verbally, we need to do something and it needs to be done now. So I don't think more studying of this. Uh, things can be changed if we find that we've dialed back too much, it can be loosened. Uh, but I want to send a strong message to council, and so I'm going to advocate for the, the strongest measure possible. With that, um, is there more consideration? Yes. I have a comment on Commission. that. Commission, yes. This is an advisory board. Um, part of this advisory board is for us to look at the facts, and the facts that are before us are from someone who this is what she does for a living. She's done it for many, many communities. And um, I, I'm going to go back to supply and demand. It's really important that we get these units built. And if we push for an ordinance that is too strong, I think it's going to stop some development, maybe a lot of development to go through. And we need these units now. You know, we need more units now if we say, okay, let's push through this really strong ordinance and um, nothing gets built for the next, you know, five years, I think that's detrimental to the community. Um, that means we're going backwards. So I just want everybody to really take that into consideration. I, like I said, originally I was happy with what we did originally back in February um, with the 15% for both. I, I think if you know, I understand that the numbers show that the 
15 and 10 now, but I would, you know, compromise and do the 15 and 15 for the rental um, and the sale. But I'm not gonna, I don't feel comfortable. Um, as much as I want to, I just, and as, as wonderful as it seems, you know, on, on a note when, you know, in a perfect world, we'd love to see all this stuff done. It, we don't live in a perfect world. And I wanna see as many units get built for, and to do the, the best for the most people. And I think that's been studied and studied. <laughs> And um, and I, I I don't want to go backwards. Thank you. All right, Commissioner Zucker. Um, well, I'd like to to you know get to get to motions and you know get us get us moving here. I, I agree with with everyone's sentiments that you know this has got to move on from our hands tonight, from Planning Commission to City Council. Um, and you know we've we've spent a lot of time on this. Even before it got to planning commission, <laughs> it's been a lot of time on this. So, you know, when I first joined the commission, I was told inclusionary housing ordinance was right around the corner, <laughs> and you know, here we are four years later, right? Um, you know, but uh, the one thing I would just you know briefly say, you know, I, I appreciate that some you know some smart heads went into you know the the analysis before us. Um, you know, I do think it's. I wouldn't characterize it as the facts. I'd characterize it as a combination of you know evidence and judgments. It's a it's a model that has some assumptions plugged in and has some judgments and has some choices to be conservative. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's our it's our judgment to choose what we do with that that evidence and um, what it points to. And I think that the folks here with Homes for All they're not kind of naive random commenters. I mean, these are the the you know, these are the biggest affordable housing developers in our, in our city, in, this, in the Homes for All Coalition. I mean, these are the people who live and breathe every day building affordable housing and, you know, building homeless supportive housing and things like that. And so, um, you know, I think they, they really come with a wealth of, of lived experience, of experience directly in our local community and the conditions here. And so, um, you know, I, I really have immense respect for that. So, um, you know, that, that being said, you know, I wanna make a motion for a little bit deeper affordability uh, you know, if we don't have the votes for that, and you know, some of that may have depended on <laughs> Commissioner Abbey being sick today, and you know, the uh, the fates of the world, right? But uh, but um, you know, if we don't have the votes for that, you know, I'm I, uh, I'm you know, potentially willing to to you know go with uh, what Commissioner Farkas suggested around maybe doing the 15 and 15. But I'd like to see maybe if we have the votes for uh, looking at the you know what what Oxnard is considering, um, which would be. Uh, you know, I'd like to make a motion to take our proposed inclusionary housing ordinance that, that staff's put before us and adjust the affordability rates to 10% low and 5% very low for rentals and 10% moderate and 5% low for sale um, and, and uh, adjust the, the in-lieu fees accordingly, um, you know, and put the affordability covenant uh, in perpetuity for the rentals. You know, I agree with others that it doesn't make sense to do on the on the homeowner side um, and, you know, see what that, where that gets us. So I'd like to make that motion. All right, a motion is on the floor. Actually, can I just, before we finish the motion, that point, can we, can we understand from the city, because I sense a, some perhaps multiple motions having to be dealt with. All right. So I just want to make sure that we understand, because this is what happened the last time we ran into some issues and I just trying to avoid that. So maybe the city could, you know, guide the planning commission on 
how this will work if, you know, if we tie on one of the votes and do we get to do another vote on a different motion? Like, how does that work real quick? Uh, yes, Commissioner. Um, so if, if there's an initial uh, motion, um, then if there's a amendment to that motion or a substitute motion, then that motion would be heard first. And if that does not pass, then you would return to the original motion and that would be considered. <clears throat> and, if an, and if a motion is considered and it fails, then another motion um, can be brought and considered. Um, and um, the city clerk, if I think it could be helpful if you could to put a document on the screen and are you able to do that and actually write out the motion um, so it's visible for, for everyone? Um, unfortunately, I'm not able to. Um, the reason for that is that the Microsoft Word account is not currently active on either of these computers. Okay. My apologies for that. We're working on getting a new pin. Um, if there is any possibility that staff at the table uh, may be able to, I could also potentially join the WebEx and share my screen that way as I do have Word on my laptop. So if you allow me a couple of minutes to do so, I could potentially do that as an option. And my apologies, we're working on getting our Microsoft Word account updated. And with six members, a tie fails. And if I could have Commissioner Zucker repeat back for me, I have to recommend the inclusion out, inclusionary housing ordinance that staff uh, has proposed but adjusting the um, affordability to 10%, low income 5%, very low income for rentals, uh, adjusting the in-lieu fees accordingly, and adjusting the covenants uh, to be in perpetuity. I did miss the second part of the affordability, affordability, affordability piece, excuse me. And then for sale, it was 10% moderate and 5% low. And keeping the, um, keeping the, the timeline on the affordability covenant. Thank you. If you allow me to take a little bit of time here to join the WebEx and get this typed up, I could have that in momentarily. Okay, well, while we're waiting for that, is there someone who has a, an additional motion? Yes. Uh, is there a second to that motion? We don't currently have a second, okay. so the uh, motion is still on the floor. Let's do that first. Is there a second to the first motion? Yes, I will second that motion. All right, very good. With that, is there a second motion to be brought forward at this time? I would like to make a substitute motion, and I move that we approve the proposed inclusionary housing program ordinance as presented with one change, and that is to change the rental covenant perpetual. I'll second that. All right. So we now, um, are we going to try and execute this on the screen? It, it's a, a challenge just to capture that while writing and still uh, attempting to type here. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a little it's challenging for me, but um, if I could repeat back the substitute motion, 
I have a motion made by Commissioner McCarty, seconded by Commissioner Farkas, to approve the proposed inclusionary housing ordinance as presented with one change to adjust the rental covenant to perpetuity. Yes, exactly. That's our current motion on the floor. Can my, I make a friendly procedural suggestion? Um, uh, Commissioner McCarty's entitled to have his motion voted on first because it was the substitute motion. Um, my, my suggestion is maybe that we, we vote on the original motion first um, because I think many of us who, who might support the original motion for a little deeper affordability if that motion fails would be willing to support you know, uh, Commissioner McCarty's motion or, or, you know, or another, another motion, right? Um, is that permissible or must we go in the order? I mean, I think um, you can, uh, Commissioner Zucker, you can request a friendly amendment, um, but procedurally, um, the substitute motion does need to be considered first. However, if the substitute motion fails and the primary, the first motion fails, then we can come back and receive another motion. I guess I'm trying to prevent us from maybe having a tie vote that fails on that motion, tie vote that fails on the original motion, and then having to do a third motion. Yeah, I'm confused since Commissioner Zucker did his motion first. Why aren't we let's why aren't we voting on that one first? Uh, under the Rosenberg's rules of order, which the uh, city council protocols adopt, which apply to city council and all of the uh, advisory bodies as well. Um, once a motion is made, if then a substitute motion is made and seconded, then the substitute motion is what is considered uh, first. And if that fails, then the original motion uh, would then be considered. Take it up with Mr. Rosenberg. All right, do we need to see this on screen or are we clear on what the two motions are? Okay. And I'm happy to repeat back the motions. Uh, okay. Please do. If the commission so let's, desires. let's begin with the substitute because we'll be voting on that, but sure. state, state both, please. Sure. So the substitute motion, I have to um, approve the inclusionary housing ordinance as proposed with one change. That change being that the rental covenant be changed to perpetuity. Uh, that was a motion made by Commissioner McCarty, seconded by Commissioner Farkas. I have the original motion made by Commissioner Zucker, seconded by Commissioner Lagerquest to approve the inclusionary housing ordinance that staff has proposed uh, and to adjust for rentals the affordability to 10% low income, 5% very low income, for for sale to 10% moderate income and 5% low income, and to adjust the in-lieu fees accordingly and to adjust the covenants for uh, perpetuity for rentals and the timeline on the covenants for the for sale. Does that or, capture the motion? I believe it does. Do the motion makers agree? Uh, yes, Keep, keeping the, keeping the uh, you know, sunset from the for sale is what most of us want. Yeah. Is everyone clear on the motions? Motion makers and agree. Which are we, and which are we voting? So oh, we'll be voting on the substitute motion first which again was the one change for the rental covenant in perpetuity. Okay. And I'll, I'll just speak on that, I, you know, that, that I, I plan to vote no on that motion. I would love to actually support it. I just want to get a chance to vote on higher affordability and then maybe if we end up coming back to it. <laughs> All right, very good. Any other comments? All right. Mr. Clerk, please take the roll of the vote. 
Okay, on the substitute motion, Commissioner Abbey is absent. Commissioner Davis? Yes. Commissioner Farkas? Yes. Commissioner McCarty? Yes. Commissioner Zucker? No. Commissioner, uh, excuse me, Vice Chair Lagerquist? No. And Chair Comden? No. Uh, tie vote and the motion fails. So we will go back to the original motion, uh, just for clarity, one more time. I've got the inclusionary housing ordinance as proposed by staff with adjusting the affordability for rentals to 10% low income, 5% very low income, to adjust the affordability for, fails, for sale excuse me, to 10% moderate, 5% uh, low income, to adjust the in-lieu fees accordingly, and uh, for rentals to have the covenants in perpetuity, and to uh, for the for sale, the timeline on the covenants, if you could clarify that last piece on the timeline on the covenants for for sale. Uh, that the, the covenants would expire as is in the current draft ordinance um, for the for sale. But Thank you, so the timeline on the covenant stays the same for the for sale and adjusts for the, uh, for the rentals. Is everyone clear on the motion? Yes. Okay, Commissioner Abbey is absent. Commissioner Davis? No. Commissioner Farkas? No. Commissioner McCarty? No. Commissioner Zucker? Yes. Vice Chair Lagerquist? Yes. Chair Comden? Yes. A tie vote and the motion fails. So now we go to penalty kicks? Is that <laughs> what happens? Someone's got a drag mark in here. <laughs> I, uh, I have just a suggestion, because I, I, I think what I would feel more comfortable with is doing the, um, the rental per your suggestion, but the for sale sticking with it as proposed. Because I think that the I think the rental is where the most lacking is, and what it seemed like in the numbers. If I and I'm and I told you I'm not positive I, that I get all of it, but to me I felt like just what I was feeling is that I would feel more comfortable about wanting more out of the rentals, but sticking with the for sale, um, you know, per the the recommendation from me. That's, I would support I, that. I've, that would that would be my I would that would be a suggestion. Amendment. Sounds like a motion. Okay, that's my motion is. Oh wait, do would you like? Can we? You want to have a discussion? Yes, of course. Uh, but hold on, we need a first and a second here. So, Mr. Clerk, are you? Maybe discuss and then maybe it'll. Oh, oh before we away. before we get a second. So the motion's withdrawn. Yeah. Currently. Right. Okay. I didn't make it. I was. All right. I was lobbying something out. <laughs> So that's a very compelling potential motion. I do have, if I'm, if I may, uh, Kathy Head, are you still on the line with us? Uh, can, can I ask a question of, of Miss Head? I'm here. Oh, okay. Um, so, did you uh, hear uh, Commissioner Davis's potential proposed motion with regard to uh, the rental units? I did. Okay. What, what, what's your gut reaction to such a motion, such a proposal? My gut reaction is so it just, I know we're all repeating things over and over again just so that we're all saying the same thing. As I understand it, the, the motion would be 10% low plus 5% very low for rental and then remaining at 15% moderate for per sale, correct? correct? I actually think that's doable 
um, mainly because I do think people are going to use density bonus for rental, and you're and you will likely end up with 15% very low. I'm just not comfortable recommending 15% very low. Good. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. So, would you like to make your motion, please? Yes, I would like to make a motion for the uh, rentals to be 10% low and 5% very low, and removing the covenant right to make it um, perpetual, right? Yes. Perpetuity and perpetuity, the other P word, and that the ownership be um, as proposed, 15%. And the and remain with the covenant of the forty-five years, and to and all of the other amended language that has been suggested. Yeah. Commissioner Davis, yep, yes. the I'm sorry, proposal is ten percent. Ten percent. Sorry, ten yeah. percent as proposed. Yes. Sorry. Moderate. Yes. And adjust the um, in the fees per as Commissioner Parkus, did you have a at this no, I'll, I, okay. I was just saying the same thing that Netta, okay, that, very the, good. that it was the 10%. All right, so we have a motion. Is there a second to that motion? I'll second that motion. That's a good sign. Very good. <laughs> For, further discussion? All right, would you please take the vote? Sure, so on the motion then, I have uh, to approve the inclusionary housing ordinance as proposed, adjusting the rental uh, affordability to 10% low, 5% very low, to adjust the covenants in perpetuity and adjust the in-lieu fees accordingly and to keep the ownership as proposed. Yes. Does that capture the motion? Aye. Okay, everyone clear? Okay, Commissioner Abbey is absent. Commissioner Davis? Yes. Commissioner Farkas? Yes. Commissioner McCarty? Yes. Commissioner Zucker? Yes. Vice Chair Lagerquest? Yes. And Chair Comden? Yes. Six eyes and the motion carries. Well done. Well done. <laughs> All right, an important uh, decision. Let's see what council does with it. Okay, now we move on to staff communication. Thank you, Chair Comden, uh, Planning Commissioners. Just that uh, your newly adopted calendar puts our next meeting into January, and that's January 25th. Um, have a happy holidays and a happy new year. Thank you so much. Thank you. Miles, did you have an announcement? Oh, yes, just uh, briefly. Uh, thank you, Chair and Commissioners. I just wanted to note that our um, the City Attorney's Office is fully staffed again now, as of a few weeks ago. I want to introduce you to uh, Chris De La Vega. He's in the um, front row, the only other person with a tie on. Um, <laughs> And he will likely be joining um, these meetings starting uh, next month or the month following. So uh, please welcome Chris. Thank you. Welcome, Chris. Hi. Yes, uh, Commissioner Farkas. I just want to say that I've been on this planning commission for eight years, and this is my last meeting. And mm -hmm. I want to thank everyone. Um, I have learned so much and grown so much and I am so respectful for everyone here. We all have differences of opinions. We all, you know, try to represent different parts of the city. We live in a very diverse city and it's wonderful to see a diverse planning commission. Um, as we just saw, we worked through 
some stuff, and, and that was amazing. Um, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the work that I've done and the work that you guys are going to do in the future, and it's been an honor. And uh, bittersweet. I'm happy I'm going to have my son, some time back. And, mm. and, um, but it, it's been a really wonderful experience for me, so thank you all for being part of that experience and teaching me and letting you know me be chair via Zoom for many <laughs> many meetings because of COVID. I mean, I've been through, I'm on my, you know, third um, community development director. I've had at least two uh, um, city managers and it's just been a lot of different uh, people here and, and it's been a, a really wonderful experience. So thank you all very much and happy holidays and happy new year. And you'll probably see me over there <laughs> raising my arms. Well, Jane, I, I, uh, I'm sure I speak on behalf of the other commissioners. Your wisdom, experience, passion, concern um, has done the city proud, and we thank you very much for your service, and you will be missed. So best of luck in the future. Thank you so much. All right. With that, I wish everybody a happy holiday. Please spread the cheer and goodwill. We're all in this together, and I'm glad this community cares enough to to stick around and say the important things. It helps us make decisions, which we all hope helps everyone. Thank you very much. Anything else? All right, I'm gonna oh, bang the gavel one last time. <laughs> this meeting is adjourned. <laughs>